Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the Minority of One podcast. Today we are going to be talking about free speech issues, specifically as it relates to obscenity laws, or rather anti-obscenity laws. The United States is one of the most progressive countries when it comes to free speech, which probably says a lot about how bad most other countries are on the issue. I've written a lot about one of our biggest shortcomings on free speech at the state and local level, vis-a-vis policies requiring kids to participate in patriotic rituals in government schools unless they get parental permission to opt out. This reached peak absurdity when I saw Ron DeSantis complaining about indoctrination in schools while being the governor of a state that requires kids to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance unless they get parental permission not to. We draw a very strong line in Florida. We want education. We do not want indoctrination. A Florida mother now demanding justice after her 11-year-old son is arrested after refusing to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. But one of the areas, one of the areas where the U.S. needs to be doing a lot better on free speech is obscenity laws. Let's review how our obscenity laws operate. In its 1973 Miller v. California decision, the Supreme Court ruled that the government can ban material if it is found to be obscene under all of the following three criteria combined, or or I should say under each of the three following criteria, because it should be noted that it does have to satisfy all of these criteria for the Miller test to apply. The Miller test for obscenity includes the following criteria, quote, whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find the work taken as a whole appeals to prurient interest, two, whether the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual conduct specifically defined by the applicable state law, and three, whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value, end quote. The ruling was handed down by the court's conservative majority, which included judges Warren Berger, Byron White, Lewis Powell, William Racist, I mean Rehnquist, and Harry Blackman, whose leftward shift was still in its early stages. Liberal justices William Brennan, Thurgood Marshall, and William Douglas, along with moderate Potter Stewart, dissented. This case is just one of a million examples of how the idea of conservatives being the pro-free speech faction in the U.S. is absurd. I will also note that the number of conservatives who consistently support free speech is rather small. Even conservatives who oppose obscenity laws often support things like flag desecration laws or the Don't Say Gay bill. But I'd like to unpack precisely why Beyond just being unreasonable, the so-called Miller test fundamentally contradicts some of the basic principles and purposes of free speech. Let's look at the first principle, quote, whether, quote, the average person applying contemporary community standards, end quote, would find that the work, quote unquote, taken as a whole appeals to, quote unquote, period interests, end quote. Now, this makes one wonder whether the court's conservative majority understood one of the main purposes of free speech. Free speech protections 
are not most necessary to protect popular speech. Obviously, popular speech deserves protection from censorship too, but free speech is most necessary for speech that the average person and the majority of the community find abhorrent. That's precisely why we had to have a Supreme Court case about the right to burn an American flag, but not about the right to display one, because it's the unpopular speech that's most likely to get banned. In effect, conservatives on the court ruled that governments have the right to ban expression if enough of the public finds it offensive. This, by the way, is directly at odds with what the court ruled in Brandenburg v. Ohio four years earlier. In this case, the court ruled that hate speech cannot be banned unless it is, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action, end quote. Now, in, for example, Everett, Massachusetts, New York City, Seattle, Minneapolis, or Berkeley, hate speech is probably considered abhorrent by contemporary community standards, but by the court's own logic, that doesn't give local politicians the right to ban it. Interestingly, four of the judges in the Miller case were new appointees who had not been on the court during the Brandenburg decision. Conservative Byron White was the only judge to vote, to vote with the majority in both decisions, upholding the right of hate speech but not obscene speech. All three of the most liberal judges serving in 1973, Brennan, Marshall, and Douglas, upheld free speech in both cases. Then, as now, while support for censorship was rampant on both the left and right, consistent free speech advocates were far more common on the left. Now let's unpack the second part of the Miller test, whether the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual conduct specifically defined by the applicable state law. The lawyers listening can correct me if they wish, but this seems to suggest that for a work to be obscene, it must depict something that is illegal under the applicable law. There are a couple of problems here. At the time the decision was handed down, homosexuality was illegal in most states and it remained illegal in some states until 2003. This indicates that the mere presence of a gay sex scene in a movie would have been enough for the movie to run afoul of this part of the test even just 20 years ago. Furthermore, if we apply this to violence, we could use it to justify banning murder scenes in movies. After all, murder is illegal in every state. And now let's look at the third one. Whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Now, this is almost completely subjective. Who exactly gets to decide for legal purposes if a work of art or other form of expression has serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value? What does serious artistic value even mean legally? This brings us back to the point with where we discussed part of the problem with part one of the Miller test. This part, part two like part one, ultimately comes down to what the majority of the public likes or doesn't like. Here's an example. Let's look at the Harry Potter books. Yes, I'm aware that the books aren't obscene unless you have an obsession with witchcraft, a negative obsession, but you'll hopefully see my point in a second. I consider those books to have great artistic, literary, and even political value, the author's scumbaggery notwithstanding. Many people all over the world agree with me. Other people believe that the books are terrible and are appalled that they are being treated as great literature. 
I bring this up to illustrate that there's no reasonable way to define exactly what has literary value from a legal standpoint. The same goes for artistic value and other forms of value. And this, as I said, goes against, goes against one of the most basic purposes of why we need free speech. To keep something from getting censored just because the majority of the community hates it. I would also like to point out the problem of determining whether or not a work has political value. One of the issues here is that it's difficult to even determine whether a film, for example, has a political message. Uh, same goes for a book. So Kirk Douglas's Spartacus film, based partly on historical events and based partly on the novel by Howard Fast, has been enjoyed as an apolitical work by generations of conservatives who I suspect are often unaware of what are, to me, fairly clear messages uh, criticizing racism and capitalism in the film. On the other hand, J.R.R. Tolkien had to repeatedly shoot down rumors that Lord of the Rings was intended as a metaphorical critique of Nazism, Communism, or the Vietnam War and the draft. How does this relate to obscene material? Well, theoretically, any director of a pornographic film involving sex work could claim that their film was intended as a critique of laws against sex work, no matter how little, uh, no matter how little social commentary was actually in the movie. Any comedian could claim that an obscene comedy routine was a critique of U.S. obscenity laws. The distinction between political and non-political is also, in addition to being impossible to define legally, it's also arbitrary and unjust, even if it can be defined. This is the basic linchpin for the idea that hate speech, because it's generally seen as political, must be protected under free speech laws, while certain forms of mindless smut can be banned. This essentially treats horrific bigotry, even bigotry that can help motivate violence, as somehow less bad legally than smut. In other words, a call to genocide can't be censored, but a porno featuring consenting adults can be censored as long as it passes the Miller test. Let's be clear. I oppose all laws against hate speech for a, for a variety of principled and practical reasons. The ACLU has been, and is absolutely right, to defend hateful people's right to free speech. But there is a double standard here that I think is helping drive up support for hate speech laws. I am frustrated by the growing support for laws against hate speech by many on the left, and I am going to continue to criticize this position. But I can also see why somebody thinks that if we have obscenity laws, there's no reason we can't have hate speech laws also. I just assume we have neither. The inherently subjective nature of determining what is obscene and therefore illegal is showcased by a practice the court allegedly had around the time of the Miller decision, known as Movie Day. This supposedly consisted of judges watching raunchy films to determine whether to rule that they were obscene. Two judges during this time were said to have abstained from viewing. William Douglas abstained because he opposed all obscenity laws. Hugo Black, who retired two years before the Miller decision, was far less hardcore about free speech. His dissents in crucial free speech cases, Tinker v. Des Moines and Street v. New York, were embarrassing, but he also refused to participate in movie day because, well, I'll let him tell it. Mr. Justice, in another very controversial case, the obscenity case in which um, Mr. Ginsburg was sent to jail by the lower courts and the majority upheld his being sent to jail, you were in the minority. 
you think that there are any times at all when obscenity can be restricted, prohibited, and not come into conflict with the freedom of press guarantee, freedom of speech guarantee in the Constitution? I've said they couldn't. Of course, I understand that pornography sounds bad. It really sounds bad. But I never have seen anybody who can say what it is. Nobody. Now, some people say it's way over there, some people say it's way over here. If the idea is to keep people from learning about the facts of life as between the sexes, that's a vain task. So it's a vain task. How in the world can you keep people from learning who mix with others out on the street and around in the various places? They're going to learn, but that's not the reason I take that view. The reason I take the view is that it's an expression of opinion. It refers to one of the strongest urges in the human race, something that people have not failed to talk about, and they will not fail to talk about. People go have an organization and write in letters and say, you let my children suffer. There's plenty of argument for the idea that they ought to take care of their children and warn them against things themselves rather than how to pass a law. And I just, uh, it's an ambiguous statement. Obscenity is wholly ambiguous. It means one thing to you and another thing to you and another thing to these, another thing to me. I don't like it. I don't use it. But I never have. I've always detested it. But that's no reason. I think that it's not speech on an important subject. Let them talk. There's an interesting aspect to your position on the obscenity case in that you refused yourself even to examine the evidence, as it were. That's not you... peculiar. Why should it be peculiar? Well, one would think that a judge should examine the Why? evidence. Why should he if he doesn't think there is such a thing? Why should I go and look at those things? And I don't, I don't look at them. But why should I go and look at them when it doesn't make any difference what the talk is or what it is? I don't think it violates any law. Only those who look at them who think they are invested with the godlike power of looking at it and tell what's obscene. What's obscene enough so they'll let the people see it. There's another related problem with the artificial distinction between political and non-political expression for obscenity laws. Once you've established the legal principle that the government can censor obscene material, you open the door for them to censor political material. This was demonstrated last year when the ACLU had to intervene to stop a woman from being prosecuted for having an F. Joe Biden sign on her property, which, as I understand it, happened to be close to a school. I like Biden. But I also like free speech, and anyone who doesn't want to be prosecuted for using colorful language about Trump ought to share my alarm about this case. Of course, there would have been no way to explicitly prosecute her for insulting Biden. Insulting the president is clearly legal. But because of obscenity laws, the government was able to basically attempt to do that in a roundabout way. I, and I, I, I should be careful here. I don't mean the federal government. She was obviously not prosecuted under 
federal law, but I mean she was prosecuted by a local government. And in a, in a roundabout way, it was because she had insulted Biden. So I recall arguing one time with a Democrat who was less supportive of free speech than myself. And they said that this woman wasn't prosecuted for insulting Biden only for using profanity. But this is basically a distinction without a difference. If you have the legal right to have signs on your own property insulting the president, but only if those signs stay PG, then your right to insult the president is very heavily restricted. We should want people to be able to insult presidents in very harsh terms, even if those terms are obscene and the president happens to be one that some of us like. To not allow that is not consistent with the principles of a free society. Now let's talk about the FCC. The FCC cannot directly control what is on cable TV, satellite TV, or satellite radio. Though if you look at their website, uh, if you look at a page on their website about obscenity, they seem to be trying to encourage the misconception that they can control it. Cable and satellite programming when these networks run afoul of obscenity laws, is prosecuted by other branches of the government. Your tax dollars at work, folks. But the FCC exercises considerable control over what can be shown on broadcast TV and radio and openly encourages offended viewers to contact them so they can find stations or even revoke stations' licenses. The FCC's rules for broadcast TV and radio go far beyond even the Miller test, covering even language that is considered grossly offensive and or a public nuisance. Those are the FCC's words. I am not persuaded by the argument that because a station uses public airwaves, censorship is somehow appropriate. This is akin to arguing that the government can prevent protests on public streets based on the idea that these protests are offensive. Now, of course, the government can regulate protests on public streets and roads to limit, for example, how much traffic gets obstructed. But all restrictions must be, when it comes to these protests, must be what are called content neutral, meaning that they cannot be based on the purpose or viewpoints of the protesters being deemed offensive. The same principle ought to apply to broadcast radio and TV. And I should note here that the principle that the FCC applies is one that virtually nobody would be happy if it were applied consistently. For example, virtually none of the conservatives who support FCC content standards for CBS or NBC would be okay with the FCC censoring CBS's copaganda on the show Blue Bloods or NBC's positive depiction of turn-or-burn Christianity in its Dolly Parton Christmas specials. Then again, maybe they'd be okay with it for NBC since Dolly Parton has been increasingly outspokenly liberal. I, I suspect that um, her record sales, if people still buy records, are probably going up in the blue states and going down in the red states. But the broader point is that if the government is going to be running public airwaves or helping run public airwaves, the access of certain members of the public to these airwaves ought not to be restricted based on what certain other members of the public deem offensive. To do anything else represents a free speech violation. To quote the late actor, comedian, activist, and Green Party candidate Al Lewis... There's another key problem with obscenity laws. 
While we still have worse free speech violations at the state level, such as mandatory pledge of allegiance laws, if we look at censorship laws that are on the books nationwide and not just in some states or towns, obscenity laws are very different from most of the other exceptions carved out for the First Amendment. Some of the main other First Amendment exceptions that apply in all 50 states include bans on defamatory statements, threats, explicit direct incitement to violence, harassment, bribes, false advertising, and failing to put warning labels or succeeding in placing misleading labels on dangerous products. All of these examples involve clear demonstrable harm toward non-consenting parties. Obscenity laws are quite different. They're mainly just about keeping a certain number of the population from getting offended. I want to address another argument that deals specifically with obscene images in films, photos, and other art forms. A popular argument, especially with conservatives, goes that free speech does not apply to images, only to spoken word. This, like many other pro-censorship arguments, is the kind that most people making it would hate to see applied consistently. For example, it would mean that religious or patriotic art, as well as video and photojournalism, including by outlets like Fox and the Wall Street Journal, could be censored without violating any free speech principles. What about laws, quote-unquote, protecting children from exposure to obscene speech or other art? It's very important to be very specific about what we mean here and not conflate very different things. Basically, the opposite of what most Republicans and many Democrats do on this issue. Obviously, child pornography and pedophilia should be against the law, and I think there's a case that perhaps we don't prosecute these offenses as aggressively as we should. The ACLU does not dispute that these things should be illegal, nor do the vast, vast, vast majority of civil libertarians on the left. But what is a very different matter is the issue of whether or not the government should step in to shield kids from obscene material through, for example, banning the sale of, um, of M-rated video games to kids or requiring that purveyors of lewd internet sites take steps to ensure that kids don't look at their web pages. There are a couple of problems with laws like this. Firstly, while it is essential that the government protect kids from exploitation, it is not the role of government to determine what kids read, watch, or look at, or what kind of video games they play. As we discussed with the Miller test, there's no way for the government to design a fair, objective standard here. Most of us would agree that an 8-year-old shouldn't play Grand Theft Auto, for example, but I'd argue that an 8-year-old being exposed to religious material that portrays homosexuality and gay couples and parents in a negative light or presents fathers as the head of their families, is probably more harmful than a kid being exposed to violent, sexually explicit, and profane books, movies, shows, and video games. So what's to say that the government can't make a law restricting what religious materials can be sold to kids? Here's another fun example. With a few clicks on a computer keyboard, your kid can access websites that not only promote the harmful ideas I've mentioned about gender and family relationships, but also warn that they'll spend eternity in hell if they have the wrong religious views. Should purveyors of these religious websites have to take proactive steps to ensure that kids can't access their content without parental permission? What about the Bible itself? 
I think the Bible is a great book for everyone to read, but it also have de has depictions of rape, incest, and genocide. Should it be illegal to sell the Bible to a kid under 18? That'll go over real well. This ties in with another problem. Once something is on the quote-unquote information superhighway, it is extremely difficult to control who clicks on it. The idea that the creator of a website or page has a legal responsibility to take proactive steps to control who does and doesn't click on their website, rather than the parents having a responsibility to monitor their kids, is unreasonable and, as we've discussed, impossible to implement in a consistent way anyway. And practically speaking, the legal principle of the government must prohibit people from making obscene material accessible to kids has a way of mutating into the government must prohibit people from making obscene material that might possibly be accessed by kids, therefore the material must not be easily accessible to the general public since that might lead to kids accessing it. We see this in actions, we see this in action with these words from the FCC's website. Quote, Indecent and profane content are prohibited on broadcast TV and radio between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. when there is a reasonable risk that children may be in the audience, end quote. In other words, indecent and profane material is prohibited on broadcast TV and radio during most of the time that most adults watch TV and listen to the radio because some kids also watch TV during that time. In the 1997 ACLU, sorry, Reno v. ACLU case, the Supreme Court was forced to strike down a federal internet censorship policy called the Communications Decency Act, largely because in the name of protecting children, it had ended up heavily restricting what adults could access on the internet also. I want to address a couple of finer points. Firstly, a couple of final and finer points. Firstly, I want to address the question of whether the strongest support for obscenity laws comes from the right or the left. We've already discussed how, in the Miller v. California case, the Supreme Court's three most liberal judges took the most pro-free speech position. A few years later, in FCC v. Pacifica Foundation, the court's conservative majority upheld the FCC's power to regulate obscenity for broadcasters. The case concerned left-wing comedian George Carlin's filthy words routine, and the lone two judges to dissent from the entire ruling were Brennan and Marshall, Douglas no longer being on the court at that point. In 1989, the Supreme Court struck down a federal policy banning the transmission of obscene uh, commercial phone messages. While the judges unanimously voted to strike down the policy, Liberal judges Brennan, Marshall, and John Paul Stevens dissented specifically because they felt the ruling did not go far enough in protecting free speech. The Communications Decency Act was passed with significant bipartisan support in the Senate and supported by Bill Clinton largely as a means of demonstrating his centrist credentials, but 14 of the 16 senators to vote against it were Democrats. Liberal Democratic Senator Pat Leahy was one of the leaders of the opposition. The two Republicans to vote against it, Jim Jeffords and John Chafee, were two very moderate New Englanders, and, and uh, Jeffords eventually became an independent who caucused with Democrats. While Janet Reno, the defendant in the case, was Clinton's attorney general, it was the ACLU who sued to get the law struck down. And while the Supreme Court unanimously struck down the law, Conservative judges Rehnquist and Sandra Day O'Connor were the ones who preferred the most limited ruling.
when Congress passed the Broadcast Decency Enforcement Act uh, in 2005, further increasing FCC censorship, if you look at the co-sponsors in 2005, two, uh, sorry, 20 of the 27 Senate co-sponsors and 53 of the 67 House co-sponsors were Republicans. One such co-sponsor was Todd Akin, who managed to lose a Missouri Senate race in 2012 for suggesting that pregnancy could not result from rape. If that's not obscene, I don't know what is. In the Senate, virtually all of the Democratic co-sponsors were moderate rather than liberal Democrats. It was passed with strong bipartisan support, but nearly all of the opposition came from liberal Democrats. I was unable to find a record of the Senate vote on the bill, but according to GovTrack.us, 36 of the 38 nay votes in the House came from Democrats, not counting the nay vote from independent, at the time representative, Bernie Sanders. I'll quote here from one of my favorite representatives, liberal New York Democrat Jerry Nodler, on why he voted against the law. His statement is worth quoting at length, so I hope everyone will be patient with me here. And since I love to do New York accents, I'm going to attempt to do it in what I think is the best approximation of Jerry Nodler's voice. Mr. Speaker, no one wants to get up and defend indecency. And I certainly don't propose to deliver a stirring defense of indecent programming. In fact, like many Americans, I exercise my right not to view programming I find offensive by using that miracle of modern technology, the remote control. It lets you change the channel or even turn off the TV entirely. I recommend that everyone run out, buy one, and learn how to use it. But the purient Puritans of this house are not satisfied with free choice and the free market. Instead, they want the government to decide what is or is not appropriate for the public to watch and listen to. Just recently, for example, the Secretary of Education, on her second day on the job, snapped into action and threatened public broadcasting funding if they dared air a show in which real-life families with real-life same-sex parents would appear. It was actually a show about making maple syrup, not an advocacy piece about family arrangements, but it was too much for the Secretary of Education. Quote, Many parents would not want their young children exposed to the lifestyles portrayed in this episode, end quote, Spellings wrote in her threatening letter to Pat Mitchell, the CEO of PBS, Who asked her? A former member of the House condemned NBC for airing Schindler's List, saying the Holocaust film took network television, quote, to an all-time low with full frontal nudity, violence, and profanity, end quote, shown during a family viewing time. He said that NBC's decision to air the movie on Sunday evening should outrage parents and, quote, decent-minded individuals everywhere, end quote. Then Senator Alphonse de de Amato rightly said, quote, to equate the nudity of Holocaust victims in the concentration camps with any sexual connotation is outrageous and offensive, end quote. So what next? We are already seeing a great deal of self-censorship, 
as the self-appointed guardians of public decency, go after anything that offends them personally. Evidently, they don't trust Americans to make up their own minds, and the large corporations that own media conglomerates are not about to risk profits by running afoul of people with power and their own agenda. I would suggest that if my colleagues are looking for obscene and indecent material, they turn off their televisions and log on to www.congress.gov. On the Judiciary Committee website, you can find sexually graphic material, including graphic sexual accounts in the Star Report. Children doing their homework everywhere can read this. In the last Congress, a member of this House introduced legislation containing eight words that would probably draw a $500,000 fine under this legislation. Our legislative information system still has this up for anyone to read. Mr. Speaker, Congress has no authority telling people what they can or cannot watch, what sorts of tolerance it will or will not tolerate, or what values parents may or may not instill in their children. You don't have to love indecency to oppose this bill. You only have to have faith in and respect for the judgment of the American people. Boy, I love Jerry Nodler. Further reflecting the greater support uh, among conservatives for obscenity laws compared to liberals, a 2019, sorry, a 2017 study found that conservatives were 10 percentage points likelier than liberals to favor bans on making sexually explicit statements in public. And a 2019 study found that support for banning porn was highest among conservatives and lowest among liberals. And in 2021, when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a student's right to use profanity on social media off campus, the lone dissenter was Clarence Thomas, and the student was backed by the ACLU. Secondly, I'd like to give a final word of warning. I frequently heard the argument that the Second Amendment ought to only apply to guns that existed at the time it was written, and that therefore more modern firearms, such as AR-15s, can be banned without violating the Second Amendment. Whatever you think of gun control, or whether the Second Amendment was intended to apply to private gun ownership or just state militias, this line of argument will bode ill for the First Amendment if it ever prevails in court. Television, radio, photographs, and the internet did not exist in the 1780s. If the Second Amendment only applies to guns that existed when the Bill of Rights was written, then conservatives could easily argue that the First Amendment only applies to forms of expression that existed at the time that the Bill of Rights was written. Even filming police officers could be made entirely illegal. The Miller test, as we discussed, is unjust and authoritarian, but we could be looking at obscenity laws far stricter than the Miller test, as well as other new censorship policies that go far beyond just obscenity laws. There's already a precedent for conservatives arguing this. The late George Anastopolo was a Loyola University law professor, and actually one of the better conservatives when it came to free speech issues, giving up the opportunity to become a lawyer because he considered questions to bar exam applicants about whether they'd ever been Communist Party members 
unconstitutional and refused to answer them. But Anastopolo also argued that it would be constitutional for the government to ban television. I would urge all my listeners who support gun control to ask themselves this question. Are you willing to get a court decision that limits the Second Amendment to protecting the right to own guns from the 1780s or earlier in exchange for another ruling that limits the First Amendment to only protect print journalism and in-person public speeches, with the caveat that the government can make it illegal to film or tape record these speeches.